Good morning. It's good to see you on this uh, beautiful snowy day of Colorado. As always, we're thankful for the moisture and we're thankful that we can come uh, to the house of the Lord, either virtually or to be in person. And uh, we are uh, engaging in a series for the rest of this month on uh, encounters with Jesus and how Jesus takes away our shame. And we're looking at uh, this event in the life of Jesus with a, a man named Levi. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But before we do, uh, again, even as Rich led us in prayer and so appreciated uh, that prayer, I, I do want to lead us in prayer again for our nation. Uh, I think it is appropriate, uh, all that is going on. So please join with me as we pray once again. Father, we come before you and we come today as your people, people from every tribe, every tongue, even, even here today, there are people from uh, different uh, nations, different ethnicities. And so, Lord, sometimes forgive us for thinking that that uh, the kingdom of God looks like us, or the kingdom of God is associated with our nation or our race or anything of the sort. Lord, forgive us for uh, even using the, the, the symbols of Christianity as, as means of violence, as means of, of, of oppression. Forgive us for, for confusing uh, the cross and the flag. Lord, we pray instead that we would be a faithful people who are faithful to the citizens of the lands which, to which we belong, yet ultimately we will remember that our citizenship is in heaven, that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, that Jesus will reign over all things, that all the nations will come before him, that all the nations will bow down. Lord, we do pray for our country, the United States, as we are in this time of transition. We pray that, Lord, as your people, we would be faithful to you in all that we do, that your word would come first, that it would govern our thoughts and our actions and our hearts. And we pray, O oh Lord, uh, for a, a peaceful transition. We pray that the, the violence would cease, that, uh, that those who have concerns would speak out in, in appropriate ways, ways that honor you, ways that are right. And we pray that uh, we would love one another well, Lord, we know within our own congregation there are many, many different political views and views about matters that are happening. But Lord, we also know that our allegiance ultimately is to the kingdom of God, that we treasure that more than our nation, more than anything else. So may we keep that first. May we seek first the kingdom. May we seek first your glory. And so Lord, even now, as we come as a people who are desperately in need of you, may we once again look to our Savior Look to who Jesus is as the author and perfecter of our faith, and may we look to him to see how we can walk before you with mercy, with humility. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we mentioned, we are in Luke chapter 5, that has already been read for us uh, today in this encounter with uh, a man named Levi. Now, when I was a youth pastor, um, our church had a concert. We were doing a sort of an outreach event. We invited this jazz guitarist named Don Potter to come and play. And Don actually was most well known for being the band leader for the country duo, The Judds. Do you remember The Judds? I know a Judd. You know, so that, he, he actually was the one who established their sound. But he, he had a very loyal following as a jazz guitarist. And that's what we brought him in to do as a Christian to uh, do this jazz concert. And so uh, the man sponsoring the event invited Don and me to join him at the Citrus Club in downtown Orlando. The Citrus Club was a very exclusive club for business leaders, movers and shakers. In other words, a place where youth pastors typically did not go. 
And uh, so my job was to pick up Don, take him to lunch. And so I picked up Don and we walked in. The hostess looks at us and she says, I'm sorry, you can't come in. And I'm wearing kind of like what I'm wearing now, very similar. I'm wearing dress slacks, white shirt, blue blazer, no tie. And, uh, and so she says, well, you can't come in. You have to wear a tie. And I said, but my friend's a member of the club. He has reservations. And she said, I'm sorry, but you can't come in. And uh, she says, actually, we can fix you. We have an extra tie in the drawer. And then she looks at Don. And Don's dressed like a Nashville musician, you know. And, you know, your typical, Nat- he's got blue jeans, dark shirt, everything else. She goes, we can fix you. To me, she goes, we can't fix that. And throughout that time, my friend walks up, he looks at both of us, shakes his head, and the three of us walk out together to some place where they allow peasants to eat. And um, now, that event was mildly embarrassing, it wasn't terribly embarrassing, but the fact that I remember it 30 years later is somewhat telling, isn't it? Uh, You know, what I was feeling at that moment is what is known as shame. What she said was, we're rejecting you because of your clothes. What I felt was I'm being rejected because of who I am. And oftentimes we, we do that. And so that feeling of shame uh, is something often uh, that many of us, are, well, not many of us, all of us know about shame. We all know about shame. Ed, Ed Welch defines shame as uh, that, that deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Shame says you don't belong, you're unexpect, unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced. All of us know about shame. And for some, that shame runs extremely deep. In fact, for, for some, shame is so, part, so much a part of your identity that you cannot even imagine being you without your shame. Uh, you're like the addict who cannot imagine imagine having life without his drugs. You cannot imagine you being you without your shame. It has become a core part of your identity. Yet as we see this morning and throughout the rest of January, uh, we're going to see this, Jesus is not put off by your shame. He's actually drawn to it. Just as a doctor is drawn to those who are sick, Jesus is drawn to those who have shame because even as the doctor wants to bring healing, Jesus comes to bring restoration. And we see this in his encounter with Levi. Now, you may not be familiar with Levi, you may not think you're familiar with Levi. Actually, you know Levi. Levi's other name is Matthew. He was one of the original 12 disciples and the author of the first gospel. And here we see the beginning of Levi's story or Matthew's story with Jesus. And it all begins Uh, we see the story with the extreme love of Jesus. So let's start here with the extreme love of Jesus. Now, Jesus just began his public ministry in the previous chapter, chapter 4, where he announces that he is going to go around and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he's going around preaching the kingdom, and he's showing that the kingdom of God is real through his miracles. He's been healing people. And immediately before this, Jesus has healed a paralyzed man. There's a man who has been paralyzed. Four of his friends brought him to Jesus. They couldn't get into the house, so they tore a hole in the roof, lowered him down before Jesus, and Jesus says, to the man, arise, take up your bed, and walk. And he does. And so 
they've just seen this miracle, and Jesus walks out of the house, and he's headed out of town, and there he sees Levi at his tax collector's office. This would have been sort of like a toll booth. And so Levi's job was to collect taxes as people moved from city to city, and he would uh, collect collect, uh, tolls uh, for them. Now, uh, what's striking about this is that good people would never, ever associate with someone like Levi. I mean, Levi was one of the most despised people in the city. And, and, and it wasn't just that people didn't like paying taxes. I mean, nobody likes paying taxes. But there is a sense in which we have where it's, you know, you're doing your patriotic duty, you're doing your fair share, you're doing, you know, there's something good about paying taxes. You have that sort of sense, you know, supporting our military. Love you guys. And so, so there's something noble about paying taxes for us. That was not true in first century Israel because the taxes they were paying were going to support their Roman oppressors and King Herod. And as far as they were concerned, the Romans were not a legitimate government. The Romans had come in and conquered them, and King Herod was a fraud of a king. He, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He wasn't even Jewish. He, was, he claimed to be the heir to David's throne. He was not. It was an illegitimate government, and yet here they are required to pay taxes. Now, and, and again, it wasn't just that they hated paying taxes or even hated paying taxes to the Roman government. They hated tax collectors because the tax collectors were not Romans. They were Jews. There were Jews who were collaborating with the Roman government and with Herod. They were, they were extorting money from their own people. Because here's how you got to be a tax collector. You weren't born a tax collector. You actually, what happened was the Roman government would put out bids for the tax collector. You would buy the position. And so once you got the position of tax collector, you needed to make your investment back. You needed to make a profit back. And so you would extort money from people. You would add a commission. You could take as much almost as you wanted to. So they were extortionists, enemy collaborators. And these people were were thoroughly despised. And then your taxes were being used to support the army that's oppressing you, as well as all the pagan festivals of the Roman government. So, So these tax collectors were despised. And that's why in the New Testament, tax collectors are oftentimes mentioned alongside of sinners. Sinners are not just people who've done a few things wrong. Sinners would be more of a technical term for those people who who did not keep the law of God. They didn't keep the ceremonial laws. So they were outsiders. They were immoral outsiders, people who were not not allowed in, uh, in good company with everyone else. And so this is who Levi is. Levi's a tax collector, and he's a tax collector not because he was born into a family of tax collectors. He is a tax collector by choice. He is collaborating with the enemy to rip off his fellow countrymen for profit. Now, once you become a tax collector, there's really no going back into good society because even if he were to ever quit his job, people would always remember, you're the guy who used to rip us off. You're the guy who conspired with the Romans. You're the guy who worked with the enemy. And so people would always remember how he sold out his, his country. You would always be a pariah. You would always be persona non grata. No decent person would ever associate with a man like Levi. Yet here comes Jesus walking out of town, sees Levi there. Levi, follow me. I mean, that alone is shocking. 
that, that Jesus would speak to him because no one would ever speak to someone like that. J- Jesus calls out to Levi. He calls him by name. And he doesn't just speak to him. He, he invites him. He commands him even to be a part of him, to follow after him. He wants to be with Levi when nobody else wants to be with Levi. Now, notice again here, very important. Notice who takes the initiative. Levi doesn't call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, can I follow you? Levi is there at his tax collector booth. Jesus is the one who calls out to him. And notice what happens here. Jesus not only initiates, Jesus is not only the pursuer, but Jesus does so while Levi is there collecting taxes. In other words, Levi has not turned away from his course of action. Levi is still an enemy collaborator. He's still an extortionist. And Jesus calls out to Levi while Levi's in the middle of a shameful practice, collaborating with a pagan Roman army, taking money from his fellow countrymen, and Jesus calls out to him. Jesus is not sitting back, reluctantly uh, accepting a wayward Levi. Jesus does not wait for Levi to approach him. Jesus does not even wait for Levi to change his life before he calls out to him. While Levi is still engaged in his sin, while Levi is still covered in his guilt and shame, Jesus goes after him. Now, what's your impression of Jesus? When you think about who Jesus is, what do you think about? Or even more to the point, What's your impression of Jesus' posture towards you? And and I'm not talking about his posture towards you, like when you're in church, reading your Bible, praying, when you've got it all together. I'm talking about what is Jesus' posture towards you when you are like Levi, engaged in your shameful practices? When you're you're in the midst of your sin, when, you, you know those moments when you've taken that vow, you're never gonna yell at your kids again. You know it's wrong and you do it. What is Jesus' impression of you? When, when you're, you're just ashamed and embarrassed by what you've done, when you've messed up and everyone at school is laughing at you or talking about you, when you've done something so shameful that you don't even want to be associated with you, what's Jesus' posture towards you? When everyone else is turning from you in revulsion, Jesus runs towards you with a smile in an invitation. In his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland observes this. He says, time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. Jesus is drawn to sinners. Jesus is drawn to the shameful. Jesus is drawn to the broken. Jesus is drawn to those who know, who know that they're disgusting, who know that they're revulsive. He's drawn to those who are like that. This is the extreme love of Jesus. And in the context of the extreme love of Jesus, we then begin to see the extreme sinfulness of sin. The extreme sinfulness of sin. It's, it's not that Jesus loves because our sin is not a big deal. And that's what oftentimes we want to do. And here's a, 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 a terrible misunderstanding of 
biblical grace. The people think that grace is where Jesus looks at sin and says sin is okay. That is not grace at all. In order to understand the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus, we have to see that sin is exceedingly sinful, the extreme sinfulness of sin. Jesus is drawn to sinners, and Jesus is attracted to the shameful. And, and the reason this is important, because if you do not believe that Jesus is drawn to sinners, if you do not believe that Jesus is actually attracted to the shameful, then you'll deceive yourself into thinking that you must clean yourself up or get your act together before you can come to Jesus. Now, oftentimes people think what they're doing is saying, I've got to get my life together. I've got to clean myself up. I've got to get rid of this sin before I come to Jesus. And what they think they're doing at that point is they actually think that they're, they're, they're taking holiness seriously, that they're taking sin seriously. Uh, and at first glance, that is what it appears to be. After all, you might realize you're too sinful or you're too unclean, you're too shameful to come before the Holy One. You know that you're not worthy to be in His presence. So you think that you have to clean yourself up first. Yet, ironically, if you take this sort of view that you must clean yourself up first, that you must get rid of your sin before you come to Jesus, ironically, you're not uh, making too too much, little of your sin, you're, you're, too much of your sin, you're making too little of it. You, you don't see how, how simple it is. The idea that you must shape up become, before coming to Jesus is evidence that you really don't recognize how bad your sin is, how extremely sinful sin is. Uh, the, that is, the problem, problem is not that you're making too much of sin and shame, you're making too little of it. You're assuming your sin is something you can clean up. You're assuming that the mess is small enough for you to fix it. But you cannot fix you. The unclean cannot clean, uh, cleanse the uncleanliness. Now imagine it this way. Let's say you're, you're a, a parent and you have three children and they're eating lunch and they're little. And uh, one child has had a peanut butter and jelly open face sandwich that they face planted on the countertop. And so they've got the peanut butter and jelly over here. The other child is eating a hot dog with ketchup and mustard. Now, I don't know how you're doing both of these things for lunch at the same time, but play with me. And, and so they eat the ketchup and hot dog, and it's all over their face, and then it's all over the counter too. And you're looking at the mess, and you're going, oh, it's so disgusting. So you reach for a towel, and you begin to wipe it up, forgetting that that towel was used on child number three that had chocolate all over them. And so now the towel's covered with chocolate, and you start wiping down the counter with the chocolate towel, that is peanut butter, jelly, ketchup, and mustard, and now you're cleaning the counter, right? Is it clean? No. Your, your mess is bigger now than it was before. You cannot clean the unclean with something that is unclean. You, you're only making matters worse. The reality is that the unclean people cannot wash anything. Only the Holy One can make us holy. That's why the first step in dealing with your sin, in dealing with your shame, is admitting that you have it and that you cannot fix it. Ironically, uh, what happens is because we're so ashamed of our shame that we think we can hide it, that we don't want to admit it, and our shame actually prevents us from dealing with our shame. Here's the irony of it, is, is we're so ashamed of what's there that we're not going to admit it, and because we're not willing to admit it, we can't get the healing that we need. It's, it's like the person. You know, they're having chest pains and their arms numb, and, and they, they realize something's wrong, but they're afraid if they go to the doctor, the doctor's going to tell them they're having a heart attack. And, and so, if you don't go to the doctor, 
and he doesn't tell you you're having a heart attack, you're okay, right? As long as I don't go to the doctor, I'm well. And, and so, what's, what are you doing? You're, by avoiding the doctor, you're not, you're not well. You're simply missing out on the treatment that you need. And by covering up our sin and our shame and not being honest about our sin and our shame, we're missing out on the healing that we need. That's why Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus' word there to the religious leaders is dripping with irony. It's, in fact, it's really sarcastic. The religious leaders are saying, why is Jesus associating with sinners? And the implication is, why isn't he with people like us? And, and Jesus goes, oh, you don't need me. You're fine. You know, I came for sinners. Uh, they don't, the religious leaders think they're healthy. They don't think they have a sin problem. And because, they, because of that, Jesus does not come to call the so-called righteous. He came for sinners, those who are sick and know it. It's only when you recognize the reality and the gravity of your sin that you can experience the healing call of Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, an old Scottish preacher, put it this way. He said, clear conviction of sin is the only true origin of dependence on another's righteousness, and therefore, strange to say, of the Christian's peace of mind and cheerfulness. In other words, the only way and the only path to peace and joy is to admit you're messed up. The only way to happiness, the only way to healing, the only way to restoration is to confess your sin and shame. So as long as you think you're righteous, you will never come to Jesus, and you will never experience His healing. Yet, on the other hand, as long as you think you need to be righteous before coming to Jesus, uh, you'll never come because your shame will hold you back. You can never clean yourself up enough. It is only by recognizing both the deadly reality of your sin and shame, as well as recognizing that Jesus is drawn to sinners who are covered in sin and shame, that you can share in the love of Jesus. You have to see both. You have to see that Jesus is drawn to sinners and that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And when you see those two things, as we see in Levi, a man who's despised by his community, a man who probably despised himself but was loved by Jesus, and he saw his sin, he saw his Savior, he comes to Jesus, and we see the transforming power then of Jesus' love. So we have the extremeness of Jesus' love, the extreme reality of our sin, and thirdly, the extreme transforming power of grace. The extreme transforming power of grace. Now, Levi, again, is a shame-filled tax collector. He is a a persona non grata in society, and yet uh, the gracious call of Jesus changes everything. We see three ways it changes him. First, Jesus' grace removes Eli's, uh, Levi's shame. Grace removes shame. See, shame causes you to be an outsider. It, it, it separates you from God and from the community. But the call of Jesus changes all that. Uh, notice the first thing Levi does when he's called by Jesus. He, he goes home and he throws a party. He doesn't just invite Jesus over for a little dinner. It's not just a quiet little dinner. It is a great feast, lots of people. And it's a, it's a big party. The religious leaders are shocked that Jesus would come to an event like this. So they, they complained to his disciples. They come to Jesus' disciples and said, 
why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They don't even say this to Jesus, but Jesus overhears it. He's, they're talking to the disciples, and then Jesus is the one who responds uh, with what he does, that he came to call sinners. Now, in ancient culture, to sit at the table with someone was, was seen as condoning their sin. And so, if you were seen at, at the table with someone who was sinful, it would be like you're saying, I endorse what they're doing. I, I support what they're doing. And so, so, you always had this, in order to maintain your own holiness, you had to stay separate from, from uh, these other people. So, according to uh, the rules of the religious leaders of the day, and really even the Old Testament ceremonial laws, shame and uncleanliness were actually contagious. So, if you came in contact with someone who was unclean, you became unclean. So, think of it this way, like, like a virus. So, let's say, um, uh, you know, someone has the, the, the coronavirus. I'm, I'm well, by the way. Um, and, uh, and they come to you, and they give you just like big hug and a kiss on the cheek, you know. They don't get well because you're healthy. What's going to happen? Well, you might get sick because you came in contact with them. The, the unclean will make the clean unclean. And, and uh, you know, someone's, uh, you know, cleaning the bathroom. They come and shake your hand. You know, what do you want to do? Go wash your hand, right? Uh, the, the unclean will make you clean. Your cleanliness doesn't make them clean. Their uncleanliness makes you unclean. Shame works the same way. If you're with someone who has shame, it could bring shame on you. You know, if you're a politician or a public figure and someone has a big fall, you know, all of a sudden their picture's not on your desk anymore, right? You, know, you won't find any politicians with pictures of them with uh, Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein. They just, they're, they're, those are gone because they're, they're, they're ashamed. Shame's contagious. And the same was true in Jesus' day. Anyone who associated with tax collectors and sinners would be contaminated by their sin. And so that's why it's shocking that Jesus would call out to Levi and why the religious leaders are stunned that Jesus would go to a party at his house. And by the way, it's probably why sometimes we do not associate with some people because we don't want people to think we're endorsing their behavior. We're afraid to be their friends. We're afraid to be close. We're afraid to draw near because what will people think of me? What will people think of me? And notice how Jesus, though, does the opposite. He's drawn to people with shame. He go, goes to those who have shame. He associates with the unclean. And so with Jesus, what we see is the process of contagion works in reverse. When Jesus touches someone who is sick, Jesus doesn't get sick. They get well. When Jesus touches someone with leprosy, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. Uh, when Jesus goes to someone who has shame... Jesus does become shamed, but they become shameless. He removes their shame by taking the shame on himself, by associating with them. Jesus becomes an outcast so that we can no, are no longer outsiders. Levi's no longer an outsider. He's no longer alone. He's no longer a stranger in the family of God. He's with Jesus. And Christian, here's the good news about you. No matter what society says about you, no matter how they say you're an outsider, I am a friend of God, right? You're a friend of Jesus. Jesus is your friend. And if Jesus loves you, you're in. You're in. And so our shame is gone because the love of the Father and the love of the Son and the love of the Spirit is with us. Your sin, your shame, your failure may have made you untouchable as far as the world is concerned, 
But with Jesus comes and He touches you, and you're no longer an outcast. Grace removes shame. Secondly, grace produces repentance. Grace produces repentance. We tend to think if we repent, then God will be gracious to us. We tend to think that God's grace is conditioned on our repentance, and yet we see in Scripture that it actually works the opposite way. Levi is caught in his sin. Jesus reaches out in grace, and that's what leads to repentance. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. It says that that God shows us his grace because grace is the means, but his kindness, Romans 2.14, is what leads us to repentance. And so his kindness is a means. It doesn't, it's not our repi- repentance that leads to God's kindness. God's kindness results in our repentance. And the same thing with Levi. See verse 28. Jesus says, Levi, follow me. And then in verse 28, we see, and leaving everything, Levi arose and he followed Jesus. Now think about this. This would have been a huge sacrifice for Levi. Remember how Levi got to be a tax collector. He bought that position. By walking away, he's losing his investment. Furthermore, tax collectors were, were typically quite rich. They're, they're very, very wealthy. In fact, um, uh, Leon Morris uh, estimates that, that Matthew was the richest of all the disciples. But by walking away, he has now lost his source of income. He's not going to make any money. And he can't go back to his job. You know, Peter, James, and John, they're fishermen. They could, they could go back and fish some more later on, and in fact, they did. But once you quit being a tax collector, it's not like you can get your old job back. He, he loses everything by following Jesus, and yet he does it like that. He jumps up and follows Jesus. And so what we see is Jesus does not set us free from the shame of our sin so that we can continue to wallow in it. He sets us free from the shame of our sin so that we can turn from it. Again, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance means to change direction. It means turning to God away from our sin. Now, our repentance does not save us. Repentance does not free us from the guilt and shame of sin. Only God's grace does that. Uh, Grace removes this through faith. However, faith inevitably, always results in repentance. Just as the sun always brings both light and heat, faith brings both uh, the, the salvation of God and it also results in life change and repentance. So what we see is Jesus reaches out to Levi, shows him his love, and then Levi turns from his sin and turns to follow Jesus. Here's how you know you really believe. Here's, here's a sign of faith. The sign of faith, the result of faith, the fruit of faith is that you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus in faith and repentance. And thirdly, just as grace removes our shame and results in repentance, it also results in mission. I think it's fascinating. The first thing that Levi does after becoming a Christ follower is throw a party. And he throws a party and invites all his friends. And so who would Levi's friends be? Not the good people. (laughs) <laughs> Levi didn't have any good friends. It would have been the tax collectors and the sinners. It would be uh, uh, the, the social outcast, the, 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 uh, the, the, the immoral. Uh, and he invites all of them to come, and he invites Jesus and Jesus' disciples. And uh, no one else would come to a party like this, but Jesus comes. And he's not turned off by their shame. He's actually drawn to them because of it. Now, can you imagine uh, what this party was like? Levi's just quit his job. 
and yet he throws a great feast. I mean, he's feeding a whole bunch of people. You know what it's like to feed a bunch of people? Anybody have a Christmas dinner with a lot of people? You know, it's, he's feeding everyone. He, he, he's, 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 he throws this party, and it's, it take, even though he's lost his job, he doesn't care about the cost. He just wants to celebrate. So here we have Jesus, Levi, the disciples, tax collectors, a bunch of reprobates, all reclining around the table. They're eating and drinking and laughing. It's like Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve all rolled into one. And over and over again, we see in the Bible that this is what the kingdom of God is like. Feasting, celebrating. While the invitation to follow Jesus will involve suffering, and it certainly involves sacrifice along the way, ultimately, the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to a party, to a celebration. And here's how you know that the grace of Jesus has transformed you. You want to share it with others. You're no longer so obsessed with your sin and shame that you stay to yourself. You're no longer worrying about what others might think about you because you know what God thinks about you. Jesus loves me, this I know. So what else matters? And when that grabs your heart, when that grabs your heart, you want others to know about the love of Christ as well. You know, you want them to know about how great it is, even if it costs you financially and personally. Because when you follow Jesus, you lose his shame and lose your shame and you want to join his mission. His mission becomes your mission. And just as Jesus came for sinners and outcasts, those who follow him are on mission to reach sinners and outcasts as well. So how is it with you? Do you see your sin? Do you see your need for Jesus? Even more, do you see that Jesus is drawn to you? That he's not put off by that? that he's not repulsed by you, but he's actually drawn to you in your brokenness and your sinfulness? And if so, do you believe that Jesus, and Jesus, your shame really is gone? I know I talk to many, many believers, including myself, <laughs> who at times think that our shame is still there. You remember those things you have done, you see those things that you still do, and you think, surely God wants nothing to do with me. Jesus is drawn to sinners. He's not put off by it. He's not put off by it. And he calls us to leave our sin, to follow him in faith. And when we believe that, when we believe that our shame is gone, when we believe that his love is actually greater than all of our sin and shame, there's only one response, and that is we'll celebrate. And we'll celebrate rejoicing that we are his and celebrate by joining in his mission of inviting others to be part of the celebration as well. Christian, you're free. You really are. It's the gospel truth. And may we share this freedom with others where we live, work, and play. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that through Jesus and what he has done, we have forgiveness of our sin, and not only forgiveness of our sin, but we have the friendship of God. We have the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us, We've been adopted into the family. We are no longer outsiders. We're no longer excluded. We're no longer frowned upon or talked about, but rather we are celebrated by the God who created all things. So Lord, may we, as your people, walk in that joy. May we hold our head up high no matter what is going on around us. May we live with joy and with courage, and may we share that joy with others, even when it costs us dearly because we know our hope is found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.